Come on. How many are ready for Paul the Apostle? Make some noise. Woo! I'm so glad that you guys are here in the second service. We are talking about one of the best people of the Bible, other than Jesus, obviously. Open up with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We have started a new sermon series in him off the book of Ephesians, and we are going verse by verse by verse. And so today, we are hitting on verse 1. Now, just to give you an example of how long this series is going to be, I have five messages I want to preach out of just verse 1. Just verse 1, thank you, sir, will require us to have five messages. So the entire book of Ephesians will probably take us all of 2017. Here's something to know about the uh, culture of the Bible. When these people were receiving these letters from the apostles, now everybody say epistles. Thank you. The apostles wrote epistles. Epistles simply means letters, okay? So when Paul is writing to the people of Ephesus, where the book of Ephesians is named after, they probably only had that book with maybe another book of a surrounding city, like Colossians from Colossia or Philippians from Philippi, or a gospel that the apostle would bring with them. Paul the apostle would bring the gospel of Luke with him. That was his traveling assistant's gospel. If Peter was starting the church, they would have the gospel of Mark. Mark wrote down Peter's message for the gospel. Long story short, the entire Bible that you would have as a New Testament Christian during the time of the apostles would probably be one gospel and one or two epistles. The Torah, the Old Testament, those 39 books would not be in your home. Those were a large amount of scrolls. They would be in the synagogue. So all that you could possibly possess, even if you knew how to read and write, which most of the people did not, let's remember that, if you at the most could possess the Bible at that time, you would have two to three letters. I say all of that to say this. Let's not get bored with the book of Ephesians this year because if you were in Ephesus, you would read it every single day, every day. The Bible says they met together daily and listened to the apostles' teaching. So if you were in the church of Ephesus, let's put ourselves in their shoes for this year, you would meet every day because remember, a third world culture is very similar to an ancient culture. Ancient cultures, you worked, you lived, you shopped all in in the same neighborhood. So that's why you could go to your church every day. I mean, you would go to work, go shopping, come home. What do you do for three hours until you go back to bed? You would just go to your neighbor's house, which was the local church. They were house churches. Are you with me? So don't get bored. Last week alone, I probably audio listened to the book of Ephesians close to 10 times. 10 times. And I am a pastor, and I've been serving God for 20 years, and it's not boring to me yet. So if you're getting bored with a book of the Bible, you're boring. The problem is you. If Christianity is not working for you, Christianity's not broke, you're broke, okay? You need to let Jesus fix you because the book of Ephesians will blow your mind every single time you apply yourself to it. So look with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, as we we learned today about uh, Paul the Apostle. I'm looking for my little mouse. Where did that little mouse go? There it is. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. You want to see my five messages right there? Paul, the apostle today, the will of God is what we preached last week. To God's holy people will be next week. The faithful will be the week after that. In Christ Jesus will be the week after that. Five messages, first verse. I decide to go all five just in that verse. So get ready for an amazing sermon series. We've got so much to cover today. Let's go right here into the introduction. Paul was born as Saul. Now, some of you might have thought, as I did, that God actually changed his name from uh, Saul to Paul at the conversion, but that's not true. The actual truth is, is that Paul and Saul were the same words used in different cultural contexts, and I had to learn that, so I'm still learning even as your pastor. Uh, Paul is the Roman way of saying his name, and so he was of Jewish descent, but he was a Roman citizen. And so when he was going to Gentile nations, he wanted the benefit of being a Roman citizen. The Romans were a very highfalutin culture where you were either Roman or you were a slave, basically. And so he had to use his Roman name to get the props of his citizenship. And then Saul was his Hebraic ethnic name that he would use among the Jewish people. But they were synonymous names, and God did not change his name on the road to Damascus, even as I had previously thought. So Paul was born as Saul, a tremendous leader and the majority author of the New Testament. He wrote 13 of the 27 books. So there's 27 books in the New Testament. How many are in the Old Testament? 39. How many total books of the Bible? 66. He was handpicked by Jesus in a post-resurrection appearance to be an apostle. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. And let's think about, as we're going to Acts chapter 9, why it was so important that Jesus handpicked Paul to be an apostle. Now remember, Jesus had many followers, fed upwards of 5,000 men, not including women and children. That could be 15,000 on a mountainside with those feedings. But he had 120 disciples in the upper room. But remember, out of those that would follow him, and upwards of 500 were probably committed to him. Those were the ones that saw him after the resurrection. Uh, Twelve were meant to be the leaders of the church. We call those the 12 apostles, the 12 main disciples. But most people don't know Paul's relationship to them. So let's stop here before we read his conversion story. Paul was not one of the original 12. He didn't live with Jesus for three years and do ministry. Though Paul was a contemporary of Jesus, probably about the same age as him, depending on where we date his life, he was a little bit older or a little bit younger. We don't know exactly when he was born, but the point was he was a contemporary of Jesus, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Jesus picked 12, and why was the number 12 significant? 12 is the number of government in the Bible. The ancient Jewish people established their nation upon 12 tribes given to them by God. So when Jesus came to establish the new covenant, he made 12 disciples to replace the 12 tribal leaders. Now, one of the disciples hung himself. What was his name? Judas. So they had to replace him. And if you read in book uh, the book of Acts chapter 1, they replaced him by actually rolling some dice, like drawing some straws, and went to Matthias. But God did not bless that choice. As you read through the book of Acts, Jesus himself picked the 12th apostle to pick the one to replace Judas. Now, here's a little side note. This encourages me that God has a plan for me, even though 
know others may not think I belong in that plan. So you should be encouraged to not let others discourage you. God has a plan for you. They all thought that was going to be it. No one else was going to join their little clique. Then all of a sudden God said, no, I got a plan for this one. I'm going to bring him in. So that encourages us not to be discouraged. But there's also part of this that brings the fear of God to me, not to be a Judas. Because if you give up on Jesus, you betray Jesus, you stop going to church, Jesus going to get someone right in your place that loves him more, will do more, and will be heavenly rewarded more. So God don't need you or me for the gospel train to keep on choo-choo. It gets going with or without you. So let that encourage you that God will make room for you in his plan because the plan is a part, uh, you have a part to play in that plan. But if you don't want it, he will replace you. So I want to take both lessons there. Now let's look at Saul's conversion. In chapter 9, Saul is going to meet with the Lord. Here's how it goes in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Hold on. What kind of person was Saul? Let's pause here to understand this. He was a Jewish trained leader, a doctor in his religion, and he hated Christians. He saw Christians as a cult of his religion, that they were changing the way of Moses. And so he actually went out on assignment. It was approved by the governors for him to arrest and kill Christians. It was illegal to be a Christian, but it was right to lock them up and put them in jail. That's what Saul was doing. In the book of Acts, one of our young disciples who was a deacon is stoned to death. And the men who stoned him threw their jackets at the feet of Saul, which meant he was in charge. They took off their jackets, picked up stones, and he was basically saying to those around him, I give my approval to you killing this young deacon. So he's still doing that. He went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and that's what Christianity was called in the way, whether men or women, he didn't discriminate, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Here we can just stop and say, you know what? If God could love a man like Paul who was literally killing Christians, God can love you and your friends in this world no matter what state they are in. Let's compare what this would look like today. This would be like God loving ISIS, reaching out to the leaders, beheading the Christians right now. This is who Paul is in his context have you ever seen a stoning? Most of us probably ever have, and that's maybe a movie or something. This is brutality. He was a part of a brutal persecution against Christians, and he had just got letters to do more, put them in prison, and as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What we notice right here is that Jesus takes it personally what you do to the church. We read in Matthew chapter 25 that Jesus says, what you do to the poor, you do to me. What you do to those in prison, you do to me. And many well-intending Christians has thought that that means we go preach to prisoners who don't know Jesus and we do that for him. We help the poor who don't know Jesus like in pagan nations or in other religions. But that is not the context. Though we should help others of different 
different religions. But that's not the context of Matthew 25. Matthew 25, the context is this. When you go and visit the Christian in prison, you're visiting me. When you help the Christian who has no food, you are literally feeding me because that's how they were treated. And Jesus says, that's how you're treating me. So we need to be careful about how we treat Christians because Jesus takes it personal. Now, he, of course, said do good things for your enemies, bless those that curse you. We should do those things in the other uh, commands of the Scripture. But when Jesus says, what you've done unto the least of these, you've done to me, he really means it. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He obviously didn't know who he was. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the story goes on to talk about how he was blinded for three days. And then God calls on one of his disciples, Ananias, to go visit him and to go lay hands on him to get his sight restored. And Ananias is like, man, I don't want to go to this guy. He's the one killing us. It would be like God saying, go visit this man from ISIS in this cave. And you're like, I don't want to go visit that guy. He's the one beheading all my brothers and sisters. But finally, Ananias goes there, and he lays hands on him. And he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared you on the road as you were coming here, sent me that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. And so what do we learn right here? We learn that Saul is a historical figure. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus didn't exist. If you hear somebody say Jesus did not exist, they are what they call a Jesus mythicist. Jesus is a myth. You have met a certain kind of stupid person if they say that to you. They are a uniquely ignoramus. I'm telling you this because from Harvard to Princeton to Yale, from any university, anyone worth their salt in ancient historical studies, freely affirms that Jesus existed. Even avowed atheists like Bart Ehrman who say Christians misquote Jesus, have everything wrong about Jesus, know that Jesus existed. It is an ignorant statement to think Jesus didn't exist as well as to say Paul did not exist. We know who Paul was. We know who he was trained by. We know where he lived. We know what he was doing in the ancient world. And yet there is something so significant about Paul life. He goes from being a Jewish man persecuting and murdering Christians to instantaneously becoming an apostle, rising up the ranks of the New Testament church, writing 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, and himself beheaded by Nero in Rome for his Christian faith that he never denied. What happened to this man? This is actually one of the greatest testimonies for Jesus. Jesus has already ascended to heaven. Why would such a man claim that he saw Jesus? For notoriety, he's already at the top of his religion. For citizenship of Rome, Rome hated Christians, and he was already a citizen of Rome. For money, he was already making money. For power, he already had enough power to persecute and imprison Christians. Why would the one persecuting and imprisoning Christians become one? You see, other religions convert by the sword, become Muslim or die, become Hindu or we burn down your, your, uh, your hut here. These religions promote violence. They oppress you until you submit to them in their cultural pressure to become like them. 
and the state is run by the Roman Catholic Church, the same thing, convert, or you won't have the same benefits of the Roman Catholics. And yet there is a man who actually joins the revolt that he himself was once against. Because remember, the Christians were the illegal ones. They were against the law of both Rome and of the Jewish people. My friends, he met Jesus. That's what happened. He had this experience. The experience of Paul should encourage us. And then we learn that after he accepted Jesus because of this divine encounter, he is primarily responsible for the grace message of salvation and Gentile missions. Now, everybody get this right here as we go to the Galatians chapter 2, verse 2. Galatians was his first letter that he wrote, the first epistle that he wrote. And he says, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Now, here's what you have to understand. All the disciples, all 11 of them who were still alive at this time, knew the gospel of grace. And Peter was kind of the one that was supposed to forward that movement. Never a pope. James was actually in charge of the church, but not Peter. But still, Peter was looked to as a leader. He was kind of the older guy there. He was married, probably had kids. And the other guys, a lot of them were young, and they looked up to Peter. But guess what? Peter was missing the grace message. Jesus had to actually give Peter a vision by showing him that Peter could break the Jewish dietary law now and eat lechon, pork, and crawfish, and all of these things that they couldn't eat before. But Jesus had already told them that earlier, but Peter wasn't paying attention. And then Jesus used that vision to show them the reason why Jewish people had special kosher diet wasn't just for food. It was to teach them they were unique from the nations. They were a different different people with a different diet. And so Jesus showed Peter in that vision, now you can eat all foods and now you can reach out to all nations. But Peter still was reluctant. Even though he went to a man's house preach and they were converted, by the time Paul runs into Peter, Peter is now favoring the Jewish converts. He's ashamed to be with the Gentile converts to Christianity. And Paul, the new apostle, literally has to rebuke Peter, the favored apostle, face to face and say, Peter, you are a hypocrite. You're not teaching the right gospel of grace. And they agreed that Paul was right. And so we see that Paul's influence on those disciples was that the gospel was to be preached by grace, not by works. The Roman pagan religious system and the Jewish system system was opposed to the grace message because both of them taught salvation by works. In other words, all religions of the world except Christianity teach uh, salvation by works. The Jewish people said, keep the laws of Moses, do all of these fasts, and then maybe you'll be good enough to inherit the kingdom of God. But that's not the grace message. That's you doing to be. I do these things, I'll be a good person. But that's not what Jesus taught, doing to be. And then the pagan religions taught the same thing. Give your money to this temple. Do these certain practices. Celebrate these certain holy days and holidays, and you may receive paradise. And yet, that wasn't the gospel message. So literally, Paul was getting hated by both pagans and Jewish people because this is what he preached. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, not by works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by grace. 
And not only did he preach that message to all the Jewish people, but he preached it to the Gentiles. And so today, if you don't have Jewish, uh, a Jewish ancestry or Jewish people in your genealogy, you are here because of Paul's missionary journeys and the revelation that Jesus gave Paul to reach all the nations and create one new humanity. No more looking at each other as Jew, Gentile, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian, as he said in other places, but all the same in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. So that's why Paul is so significant. Think about it. He is picked after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is already in heaven, but Jesus literally comes down to meet with him to have him fill in that 12th spot. And then he was responsible for the grace message and for the Gentile mission. Now think about what the word apostle means. Apostle means a sent out minister called to start and establish churches. Now at this point, we may get a little bit confused because in the American culture, the guy who or the woman who normally holds the mic and teaches you on Sunday is called a what? A pastor. But that's not how it was in Bible days. Everyone was not known as a pastor. As a matter of fact, the pastor, as you will learn in Ephesians 4, and by the way, we'll probably get to Ephesians 4 at this pace around November, so make sure you're here around November. We don't even want to think about the fall right now. How many are excited for spring and summer coming? Amen. But sometime probably in the fall, we'll be at Ephesians 4. But here's how the Bible describes it. There are five ministerial gifts that he gives the church to operate in. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But those are not the titles. Those are the gifts. Those are the actions. It's just like you don't call your manager. You don't say to the manager, you are the organizer of the schedule. You don't call them the organizer of the schedule. You call them the manager, and one of the things they do is organize the schedule. You see, Paul taught us, because he was one of the main apostles to show us church government, is that elders and deacons are the titles of the church officials. Elders and deacons, that's what we raise up the churches to be led by, but then the elders and deacons do things. Some are apostles. Some are prophets. Do you get it? Some are evangelists. Some are teachers. Some are pastors. Now, in our culture, we call everybody a pastor, and I don't go against that just out of respect for the culture, but what I am and what our leaders are here is we're elders and deacons. Now, what do I do as an elder? Well, I can relate to Paul. I'm also an apostle gifted to do that because I wasn't born and raised in Chicago, y'all. I came from the cornfields of Indiana via the swamps of Louisiana up to Chicago. So to start a new church. Now, it's not just guys like me who hold the microphone who can do these things. Anyone who's an elder can be used by God to do these things. Our life group leaders pastor and teach, evangelize, and so forth. And they can be sent out to do those great works. So Paul was an elder in the church of God. And I'll just show it to you quickly with Peter. We know Peter was also an apostle, and you can just see how it works here in First Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, to the elders among you, I appeal as a what? Fellow elder. So what was Peter's position? Was it a pastor or an elder? Was it an apostle or an elder? 
an elder. That is his position in the church. And that's the same thing that Paul writes about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer or an elder desires a noble task. And then he goes on to talk about deacons further on. And then also in Titus, another, see, uh, Timothy is a pastor, pastoral leader of the church of Ephesus, an elder there. And then in Titus chapter 2, that's another one of his men. He says, uh, teach the older men to be temperate, etc. And then he says, teach the young men to do this. And then he tells the elders what they need to do and how to obey God. Oh, as a matter of fact, it's chapter 1. This is the book of Titus chapter 1. And he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what I left unfinished and appoint what? Elders. Appoint who? Elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, etc. And so Paul was an apostle, yet he was an elder. The elder describes his office and position. Apostle describes his gift. And you'll learn that when we go to Ephesians, because Ephesians chapter 4, I'll just go there right now. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 says, it's a gift that God gives the church. It's not an office. It's a gift. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service. So I can no more make myself an apostle than I could make myself a bird and fly out of here. You are given the gift to be an apostle. God gives that gift to someone to pastor and shepherd God's people to teach. God gives it. But what you can do is you can set your heart on being a elder. I can't make myself an apostle, but I can aspire to be an elder. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Do you see the difference? The gifts are the ministerial gifts are given, the offices are aspired to. And if you also want to see another contrast for some of my mature believers here, the eldership and the deaconship is where the uh, job uh, description is given and the character expectation. So you have to do these things. You have to be like this. But here in Ephesians, there is no job description for apostle, prophet, pastor, etc. Because these are not things you can aspire to be. It's a gift. It's given. I can't make myself an apostle by doing X, Y, and Z and these things. But I can be an elder by doing these things. So here's the way we look at it. God anoints and then man appoints. God anoints us with many gifts. Fivefold ministries is some of the many ministerial gifts. He also gives gifts of generosity and administration, the Bible says, all throughout uh, the Bible, uh, Romans and in 1 Corinthians. So God anoints, God gives you these things, and then he says, now walk worthy in the church and men will appoint you to be used in those gifts. Can I get an amen? So Paul walked worthy and he was anointed and appointed. And he was called to start and establish churches, just like we've started and established one here. Here's what he did, though. He established them in sound doctrine, Christ-living, Christ-like living, and spiritual practices. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, to see what the New Testament churches look like. You see a lot of things on Discovery and History Channel now, like, ooh, the ancient Mayan people, the Incan people, the ancient Egyptians. But have you ever studied the ancient culture of Christians? Wouldn't that be exciting to understand how they lived? Well, let's take a journey 2,000 years ago and see how new, the new church lived, the Christians of those times lived. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The breaking of bread, there is communion and prayer. So they got together, listened to the apostles' teaching as we're doing now, literally. They fellowshiped, hung out, similar to how we do out there before and after service. They broke bread. Many times we have things out there with bread, you know, like uh, pastries and so forth, and they prayed. That sounds like we're doing it, amen? Everyone was filled with awe, awesome, right? Awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. How many see God do great things in this church? Souls saved, people healed, demons cast out, words of wisdom and knowledge and gifts of the Spirit given. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Do you share? Are you willing to give somebody a ride? Do you help out with those in need, give clothes? We have a MPI Good Samaritan page where that literally happens. People are giving and sharing all the time on Facebook. If you haven't joined it, join it now. You can see people giving away beds, clothes, offering jobs. It's a wonderful place to participate in this. They sold property and possessions to anyone who had need. How many love to give generously? So those who had more would give more. Every day they continued in the temple courts. Remember, they were going to the temple until they got kicked out by the Jewish people. Then they met in their homes. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. The eating here is separate from communion. This is actually the life group's way of doing things. How many like life groups? Amen. Single moms, Friday night Bible study, Wednesday King's Kids. That's usually food involved, having fun together. You're glad, you're sincere, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. And people got saved yesterday. People are getting saved today. I believe we can see people saved every day in this church. Amen. Amen. That's the kind of church that Paul was a part of. You notice there, it doesn't say anything about a cathedral, doesn't say anything about a pope, doesn't say anything about people dressing different, though some may dress up or dress down, doesn't matter. But what was there was sound doctrine, Christ-like living, and spiritual practices. But you know what Paul did during the midst of all of this? He suffered greatly in ministry. We'll talk about that later as we read that passage in 2 Corinthians, but it came at a price. And so we need to be encouraged by Paul that even though doing the right thing, it may come with the wrong results. Sometimes we think, if I do the right thing, I'll get the right results. But Paul was doing the right thing, and bad things kept happening. But he did not give up. Yet he was extremely fruitful by the grace of God. May we all be inspired by Paul's life to walk worthy of our calling. Everybody turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul tells us where he's at when he's writing the book of Ephesians. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord. As a what? As a what? A prisoner for the Lord, thank you. Then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You can literally see Paul writing this letter to the church that he started in the city of Ephesus. And I can't wait to tell you about how it started in Acts chapter 19. Because when we get to that next week, God's holy people. I'm going to tell you who those people were before they met Jesus and who they became after meeting Jesus. So get ready for next week. But listen, Paul is a prisoner And he now tells them, live worthy of your calling. Let me ask you something. Do you think that these chairs could be filled today, right now, even for second service, if everybody lived worthy of their calling? Yeah. Stop making excuses. Start putting God first. I don't think we would have a a building big enough to start fitting all the people in this city who already knew about Jesus and what they were supposed to do for Jesus if they decided to do it right now. 
There are so many backsliders in this city, so many people here that you'll meet. You know, they said they met a, a youth pastor that wasn't serving God yesterday as they were evangelizing. He accepted Jesus in his heart. You would be shocked how many people say, oh, I believe the Bible, I believe in Jesus, but aren't doing it. Paul says to all those people, hey, man, I am suffering. I am literally locked up for the faith I have in Jesus because as he used to put people in prison, somebody else took his place and put him in prison. But he said to them, he said, now you live a life worthy of your calling. How many want to be like Paul and live worthy of your calling? Amen. Let's look to some things in Paul's life that can summarize it from start to finish and then be inspired by his life. Let's look at the timeline here. If you can't see all the details here, I know it's small. Make sure you go to the app or the website. We always have our notes online. You can see here he was born around their best guess, A.D. 5. Jesus was born around 3 B.C., but they also think that he could have been born around 6 B.C. So give or take a few years, him and Jesus are contemporaries. While Jesus is living for the father, this man lives for Judaism. He goes to school. He becomes a scholar. He gets in charge of his, uh, his, his area, even to persecute Christians. And it says even who he studied under. So this is not, once again, just some mythological guy. This is a person of history who lived in Tarsus, who studied under Gamaliel, and he worked in the Judean region. You've heard about his conversion to Christianity. He then spends three years in the desert learning about the whole, the, the whole concept of the grace message in the Gentile mission. So yes, it's an instant that he gets knocked off his horse and converted, but he takes the next three years to go through all of those scriptures of the Old Testament and then get the full revelation. That's what you just read about in Galatians, because then he presents it to the apostles and says, hey, just wanted to make sure I'm doing this right before I get sent out. And the apostles sent him out with Barnabas. Barnabas' real name is Joseph, but he was nicknamed Barnabas. Barn means son of. Son of. Abbas is encouragement. Joseph was such a generous giver and such a help to the apostles, they nicknamed him son of encouragement, and you probably only know him by Barnabas and not even his real name, Joseph. Isn't that amazing? And that was Paul's traveling partner. They travel first, mostly doing charitable work in Jerusalem to the persecuted Christians. Then he does his second missionary journey journey, and that's right around here, right here, and that's where he starts the church of Ephesus, and he's writing these various letters. Now, as we said before, Galatians is the first letter written right around his first missionary journey. Then his second missionary journey, he's traveling, and he writes some letters, and his third missionary journey is where he spends three years in, of Ephesus, and he writes predominantly the most of these other letters until he gets locked up. Then he writes the letters that we call the prison epistles, and then he's taken to Rome. He gets released for a little bit in Rome does a little bit of traveling, gets arrested again, and then is beheaded by the emperor of Rome, Nero. And if you remember, how did he leave the Ephesian people that he was there with for three years? He says, God has told me to go give my life in Rome and preach the gospel to the Roman Empire, starting with the emperor. So God kept his word, but it cost him his life. Would you be willing to do something like that for Jesus? They even told him, don't go. They're going to kill you. And he goes, I know. That's why I'm going for them to kill me. You'll be surprised at the stories of these men's lives, how bold, and even the women as well, how bold they were for Jesus. And that's why Christianity within 300 years brought Roman paganism and the entire Roman Empire to its knees, and it became a Christian nation. Sadly, only a few years, a few hundred years after, years after that, they became inundated by a false 
church, the Roman Catholic Church, they mix the paganism with the church, but the testimony still remains. Within 300 years of Christian martyrdom and the gospel being preached, they brought the Roman Empire to their knees. Can I get an amen? And Paul was one of the, the greatest leaders of that time. Now, here are seven inspiring things about Paul that we need to know. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he writes to the Corinth church, the city of Corinth, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, you don't hear this talk much today in our churches because most people try to be all fake, humble, and they're like, don't follow me, just follow Jesus because I'm going to let you down. I'm so imperfect. But that's not how the apostles and how Christians spoke at this time. They believed that they were the living representatives of Jesus upon the earth. As a matter of fact, they were disciples first and called that over 200 times in the Bible. But you know who called them Christians? It wasn't even themselves. It was the pagans who saw them living so much like Christ, they said these disciples are like little Christ walking around. That's where the word Christian came from, pagans calling us little Christ. I wonder if someone says to you on your job, you remind me of Christ. You remind me of Jesus. I wonder if our children can say that of us as they read the stories of the Bible. You remind me of Jesus. Now you'll find out that Paul did not do it in his own strength. He did it by the strength of God. But nonetheless, he was bold enough to say, follow me as I follow Christ. I wonder if there's anybody here that's going to say, follow me as I follow Paul as he follows Christ. Will you go to your job tomorrow and say, you want to see what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ on this job? Follow me as I follow the apostles in Christ. Follow me because you should be bringing them the life of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's go through these seven things. I think I had about 20 at one point. I brought it down to 10, then I tried to uh, get it down a little bit more, so I got you for seven today. Are you guys ready for seven things? Here they are. Number one, Paul always remembered the mercy of God. He wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy, who was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Look at your neighbor and say, this is real. This is what Paul said. This is real. Here you want to know what's real? Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Isn't that a bold thing to say? How many of you would say that too? Man, I'll just tell you this right now. This is real. This is the truth. Christ came to save sinners, and I was the worst. Now, some of you may not think of yourself as the worst sinner, and that's because you do have the worst sin, the sin of pride. You may think to yourself, well, I wasn't as bad of a sinner as Paul. I wasn't killing Christians. I mean, Paul, you were the worst of sinners, but not little old me. Paul, I was the good kind of sinner. I was the best kind of sinner. Here's a truthful statement everyone can believe. Christ Jesus came into the world to save really, really bad sinners, but I was just a okay, good sinner. That's what some of us would think. But let's just go through the idea of sin and righteousness real quick and see how well we do. Because remember, works religion says we can uh, work off our own sin. So maybe you're dealing with that works mentality right now. So Paul, uh, you know, he killed Christians. That really makes it hard for him to do more good works than his bad works, right? Well, let's just think about if that's really the grace message or the way we're supposed to look at sin. Let's say you know a person, your next door neighbor. Let's say they're 70 years old. And they've been married for 50 years. They married their high school sweetheart at 20. And they have been married for 50 years. And let's say this guy fought in the Vietnam War, was a war hero, came back and worked as a postal worker, retired in high standing. Let's say he raised with his wife three beautiful children, all of them good citizens. And so the neighbors think he's a great person. 
and you love him. His job loves him. But here's, here's the thing about him. One day he got into an argument with his wife, took a hammer to her head, and he killed her. And so now he's on the witness stand. He's there in front of the judge. And now he tells you his story. He says, he says, judge, I've been living for 70 years. I've never broken any laws. I've gone to war. I've been a post office worker. I've been a faithful husband. I've been a great dad. I've done all of these things for 69 years, 364 days, 23 hours, and 55 minutes. It was just this five minutes, just this little part of my life I murdered my wife. Can you please just overlook this five minutes of murder with all this time I've been good? Do you think a good jo a judge would say, of course, let's just overlook it. You're awesome. You're right. You've been doing great for 69 years, 364 days, 23 hours, and so many minutes. Yes, you're good. No. Is there any good works that that person could ever do to make up for that one little sin? Now, you may say, well, Pastor, that's a big sin. But hold on, let's look at sins for a second. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, what, what sin did they, or first of all, how many sins did they commit to get kicked out of the garden and bring spiritual death to the human race? 20? 10? 5? What? One. Also, so it's just a little one, right? Now, what did they do? Did they murder? Did they rape? They just disobeyed. So now ask yourself this. If God takes that serious, one sin, how many good works do you think you could do to make up for the many sins you've done? So you, you see, all of us, when we see the grace of God, we realize we're the worst sinner. We're the kind of sinner that deserves hell. We're the kind of sinner that has made our own choices, and we know we deserve it. And that's an honest person. That's a humble person that can admit that. And Paul knew that to be true. But look at what he says in verse 16. But for that reason, for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I'm an example to you of God's great patience. I'm an example to you of God's great mercy. You are an example of God's great patience. You are an example of God's great mercy. If you ever think that you are not a sinner deserving of hell, you will not be a great example to the people around you. When you walk with the reality of, I know who I am without Christ, you will be a trophy of God's grace everywhere you go. And remember this, Paul was not saved by his good works. Just imagine if I was standing at the United States border with Canada, and let's just say citizenship just depended on what country I was actually in. Just imagine this as a thought experiment. So I step over here, I'm Canadian. I step over here, I'm an American. Step back over here, I'm a Canadian. Just imagine if it worked like this, because that's the example that Paul is saying. When I was over here without Christ, I was the worst of all sinners. I know I am destined for hell. But when I come in Christ. Listen to that over 20 times in the book of Ephesians. In him, in Christ. Remember, that's what he said in the first couple verses there. Faith, uh, I am an apostle in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, I am forgiven. I am holy. I am righteous. I am a saint. In him. I step out of him. I am the worst of all sinners. I am destined to hell. I keep my life in him, in faith. Are you listening to me? In Christ, I am a trophy of God's grace. I wonder if you've forgotten that. Because Paul never forgot that. 
no matter how old he got, no matter how successful he got, no matter how many people looked up to him, Paul always remembered who he was when he was outside of Christ. The next thing that we can be inspired by is that Paul never forgot his encounter with Jesus. I heard that Steve and the youth group had an amazing time talking about the love of God, and it reminded me of my testimony of when I first met Jesus. And I want to ask you, do you remember when you first met Jesus? My dad was raised Catholic, and he said it like this. I would go to the Catholic cathedral, and Jesus was always out there, somebody over there, a person of history, a man on a cross. But when I was born again, Jesus went from out there to in here. Paul the apostle was persecuting somebody he thought he knew. He thought he knew who Jesus was. He thought he knew all about him. But when Jesus finally showed up and spoke to him, he didn't even recognize him. My friends, let us never forget our encounter with Jesus. Not religion, but our encounter with Jesus. Do you know that Paul was so bold in his encounter that he would tell it to kings? Listen to him recall this journey to a king. I wonder if you would tell your testimony to a president, to your boss, to your neighbor, or if you would be shy. This man was bold to talk about his encounter with Jesus. About noon of Acts 26, 13, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing all around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Do you remember where you were when you first heard the voice of God? If you haven't heard the voice of God, you need to. You can't inherit the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And God promises all those who are born again will hear his voice and recognize it. He said, my sheep know my voice, another voice they will not listen to. Paul always remembered his encounter, and he told it everywhere he went, and he was obedient to it. Look at what he says at the end of the story here. He says then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. As a matter of fact, that's why I'm here arrested before you, great king, right? I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Have you been obedient to your encounter with God? Have you told your family, your co-workers, your friends, all those around you? Have you been obedient to go into all the world and preach the gospel as Paul did? So often we get discouraged because, oh, my family doesn't like it when I talk about God. Paul was arrested for talking about God. So often we get discouraged because, oh, you know what? Uh, I won't have the same friends if I you know, put Christ first and all that I do. Paul lost not only his friends, but he lost his whole nation's respect. The Jewish people were the ones who turned on him, the very ones that he was probably trying to go uh, uh, get permission from to get these other Christians arrested were probably the same ones who put the bounty on his head, bring me Paul. We need to learn from him. Never forget the mercy of God. And tell our story everywhere we go, no matter what the consequence would be. The next thing that we see is that Paul was a humble man willing to learn and work with the other apostles. Now, if there was anybody that could be like, hey, I know it all. I've seen Jesus personally. I've studied three years with the Holy Spirit in the desert of Arabia. I've rebuked Peter even face-to-face with what I knew was the truth when he wasn't following it. If there was any bad mamma jamma that could walk around in pride, it would be Paul. But after 14 years, Galatians 2 says, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. We talked about him. I took Titus along with me. We've mentioned him. 
He says, I went in response to a revelation and a meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. We've read this, right? I presented to them the gospel that I had preached among the Gentiles. Now watch this part. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. I wonder how many of you here would say, you know what, I love God. I know Jesus. I don't need a man to tell me whether or not I love Jesus. I know I love Jesus. But I want to go to some esteemed leaders to see how I've been running my marriage. I wonder how many husbands would submit themselves to esteemed leaders and go, I want to see how I've been doing. Let me just tell you how my marriage is, brothers, and how I get along with my wife and kids, and you give me some feedback. I want to know if I'm running the right race or running in vain. I wonder how many mothers would be humble, wives being humble, talk to esteemed women in the church and go, I know I love Jesus. I'm a mom. Nobody has to tell me how to be a mom. I'm a grown woman, but I just want to run my life by you. I just want to make sure I'm not being off in my marriage or off in my ability to be a mother. I wonder how many young people here would go to a youth pastor or a youth leader and say, hey, brother, will you look at my life and make sure I'm not running my young adult years in vain? I wonder how many Christian businessmen and women here would submit themselves to esteemed leaders in the church and say, I think I can still learn some things here. I want to make sure I'm treating my employees right. I want to run by you some ideas that I have. I just want to let somebody in in my life that I can trust because I don't think I know it all. Yeah, I've had an encounter with God, and we could maybe say our encounters are important, but I'm sure they weren't as, as impressive as Paul's, right, a bright, shining light. But even then, Paul said, I know I've had encounters, but I've got to honor leaders too. I've got to be willing to get around people and run things by them. When was the last time you ran some things by esteemed leaders in your life? Paul was willing to do that. If you want to be like Paul, you should be humble. Here's the next thing that we learn is that Paul empowered the downcast people of his day. I said that you'll meet some kind of a new stupid if you hear someone say that Jesus or Paul did not exist. You'll meet that same kind of person if they say the Bible puts down women and races or slavery, etc. That is exactly the opposite, the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, that lie has been perpetrated most by American-born Muslims, predominantly the nation of Islam during the 60s and 70s civil rights movement, where they called the white man the devil, Christianity the white man's religion. But what they failed to tell you is that it was Islam that started upon the planet, the first religious slavery of Africans. And that it was Islam that when they wanted to tell their people what the devil looked like, actually pointed to a black man. Muhammad said, do you want to know what the devil looks like? He looks like this black man. And I will send you those sources if you don't believe me. As a matter of fact, in the Roman world, though it was predominantly European, Roman citizenship was what defines your role in that world, not color. There were black Roman citizens, Asian Roman citizens. There were Roman citizens from all different parts of the world. You could get your citizenship by different ways. However, if you were a slave, more than likely, that, that was the largest class of people in Rome. It was more than likely because you had no other way to provide for yourself. And yet it was the Christians. And more European people were slaves in Rome than any other color, by the way. But yet it was in that culture that Paul uplifted women. 
freed slaves and set forth the example for what American civil rights Christians did in the abolition movement and during the time of Reverend, not Iman, but Reverend Martin Luther King. Let's look at first his lifting up of women. Now, Paul, at the end of his book to Rome, in Romans chapter 16, is going to run through the people of his squad. He's going to go through all the people that he knows are in Rome or in that area, and he's going to list them out. This is a unique insight into Paul's life. He doesn't do this in many of his letters. Sometimes he'll only name a few. Like in the book to Ephesians, he only names Tychicus. And that's really all that he'll say. But in this book, you see the squad of Paul. I want you to notice how many women he mentions. Some people now tell me, uh, because the Roman Catholics taught that women couldn't be in ministry, they'll say, well, these are just women who are helping. They're not in charge. My friends, the same exact words from deacons to apostles to workers to ministers are applied to both male and female in this list. If working hard, being a deacon, leading God's people does not mean they were in charge, then nobody was in charge. You cannot change the definition to suit your purpose. Look at Romans chapter 16, verse 1, the first one that he mentions. He says, I commend to you our sister who? Phoebe. What is her name? Phoebe, just a cook in the church, just a cleaner in the church, just a maid in the church. What is she? A deacon of the church in Centuria. She held one of the highest positions And he goes on beyond that in verse 2. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people. However you receive the greatest of his people, receive her. And to give her any help she needs. And if you ever offer anybody help, that means you have to listen to what they say. So in other words, listen to her and help her. For she has been the benefactor or the patron of many people, including me. And some go as so far as to say that the word benefactor and patron here can literally mean that she was a mentor to Paul a mentor to him. He then goes on to say, greet Priscilla and Aquila. He puts the woman's name first, not a grammatical accident. He doesn't do it all the time. This is a specific couple where the woman's name first, this is the same couple that brought in Apollos in the book of Acts and taught him further the things of God. Now look at what he says here. Does he separate the man from the woman? No. My co-workers, plural in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Here, the woman is paid one of the highest respects in grammar by the name coming first, and it is said that it's her house along with her husband. It's her leadership along with her husband. He names off some dudes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with the dudes. I'm going to score some points with the sisters today, if that's okay. So it's going to go right to the sisters, Okay. He says, greet Mary who worked hard for you. Once again, if someone wants to say, well, working hard there means she cleaned the house, but then working hard when Urbanus here is said to be a co-worker, it means he was preaching. That means nobody preached because you can't take co-worker in one place and a hard worker in another place and change the definitions. Do you understand? They're either all doing it or nobody's doing it. 
She was a hard worker. Then here, he says, greet Andronicus and Junia. What is special here is that Junia has been fought over by the Roman Catholics for centuries. And let me tell you why. First of all, you notice her name comes after Andronicus. Maybe he liked Priscilla more than he liked Junia because she doesn't get the same respect. But you know what I honestly think? I honestly see this in our church. You see, if I was going to be giving instruction to you to go see our pastors, I would probably say Griselda before I would say Berto because Griselda is the voice of that couple when it comes to leading in the church. Now, Berto is an amazing man of God, but Griselda has the more outward expression of preaching and teaching and so forth. But yet, then there are other couples like Robin and Ish, I will say, or Ish and Robin rather, where Robin more or less serves what Ish is doing. And so you can just see women in different roles with their husbands being in these titles. And once again, this is not made up. This is true looking at the grammar. But look at what the Roman Catholics tried to do. They were so upset about this because they don't believe women can have any leadership roles that they tried to make Junia a man, Junius. And they tried to put literally into the text the S to her name. It had been fought over for hundreds of years until the church fathers had to be brought back in and the manuscripts had to be tested that it was in fact a woman. A woman. Then the modern day Baptists and those who try to say, well, that yes, they can work together as a couple, but they can't lead together, tried to take out this statement. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ Jesus before I was. The Baptists today, like at Moody, try to say among the apostles means that that Paul and the rest of the people, they liked uh, Andronicus and Junia. They liked them. But see, if her name would have been Junius, they would have changed among the apostles to not mean they're liked by them, but they're literally sitting at the round table, one of them, apostles themselves, among other apostles. But because they lost the battle over Junia being a female, they then tried to pick up another battle today in modern times to say among the apostles just means that the apostles like them. But that isn't what it means. You can check the Greek, the grammar, and the best of our scholars totally agree with what I am telling you today. And I have debated this with Baptists, that this is fully saying they were not just applauded by the apostles, but were themselves apostles. And that is why he clarified, says, before I was. They were leaders in the church, planting churches, even before Paul the apostle was. How do you think he feels about women? Do you think he respects women? Do you think he honors women? He then goes on to say, greet, greet Trophina and Trophius. These women work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, where we get the name Percy from. Anybody meet a Percy? That's an older name of a different generation. Another woman who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. His mother has been a mother to me, paying, once again, the highest respect. Greet Julia and Neuros' sister. And then he tells them, greet one another with the Holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greetings. Now, somebody may pick out the letter of Timothy and say, when Paul wrote to the people of Ephesus, he told the women to be quiet and not teach a man. And that is true. In Timothy, it does say that. But that does not take away the deaconship, the apostleship, and the leadership of all of these women. What was happening in Ephesus, as you will learn next week, is that a key part of the Temple of Diana, which was a seventh wonder of the world, was women practicing prostitution. 
And these women would be like gypsy kind of women that would sell, and I don't want to put down gypsies, but, but women that were loose, trying to be tarot card reading, and would sell their body to men for their religion. Paul put a special stipulation upon that church culturally for them not to usurp their wrong authority. But as you can see in places like Rome and in other places, he empowered the women. Now, what about the slaves? Now, once again, it was a unique attack against American Christianity by the African-American Muslim in the 60s to get people to think that it's a white man's religion, that it is a religion of the slaves, when it was actually their religion that taught slavery, actually their religion that taught uh, black people were of the devil and so forth. But our Bible... Our Bible contains an entire book about freeing a slave, an entire book. I don't think you can get more abolitionist than that. The entire book of Philemon is Paul writing from jail saying that he has caught, uh, he has met the runaway slave who was a criminal who is now arrested for bad behavior, won him to the Lord, and sends him back to his master, quote unquote, but says, free him and treat him as you would treat me. Now, that gets us to the place in Ephesians where it says, slaves, obey your masters. Now, remember, in Rome, the slavery was the majority of the culture, and it was for their economics. And so what we would call a slave today is not the same thing. This is not someone being treated as an animal. It had nothing to do with race. The predominant race was European, and it had to do with your status in that culture. But when the Christians were in charge, they released the slaves and treated them as equals, as Paul will teach us in Ephesians. So if you still needed that job because you have no other job to do in the Roman society but as a slave, the Christian was to treat his slave as himself, knowing that Christ is his master. Do you understand that? And Paul was very clear that slave traders, those who kidnap people, chattel slavery, treat them as animals, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can I hear an amen? But listen to this clear statement of liberty, liberty from Paul. Therefore, though in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, I could tell you to do what I'm telling you, but I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man, now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son. Listen to the endearment here. My son, Onesimus. Did you ever hear Bubba, the, black, uh, the, the white man owning black slaves, call Kutakinte his son? Do you not understand what's happening? This is not the slavery of the deep south that the, that the nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan, Malcolm X, have deceived you to think Christianity is. He says, I appeal to you for my son who became my son while I was in chains. That's where we get the idea of Paul having spiritual sons. He would call them his sons and have them look to him as a father, but never called him Father Paul. Do you understand? It was just an a term of endearment. Call only God Father, amen? In a religious sense, call only God Father. Formerly he was useless to you, but he has become useful to both you and me. So this was a man that didn't run away because he was being mistreated like he was on a plantation. He was there for probably crimes that he had committed. So take, for example, how the Roman Empire would deal with crimes. So I have a friend that they owned a gun, they had it in their house. It's a friend of a friend, really, but this is the story, as I've been told, because it was her brother. And they were both drinking, drank too much, and the one friend picked up his other friend's loaded gun and shot himself with it in the leg and bled out before the paramedics could come. 
In this culture, involuntary manslaughter would put that man under the slavery to the, to the house of the family that lost their son. That's how you would make up your restitution. You would work their fields. You would work in their business. You would take their place as, your, as their sons. Everybody get that? And if you were captured as another nation, you would work for Roman citizenship. Now, I'm not saying Romans treated their slaves fairly all the time, but that is the world that it was supposed to be, ideally. So when Christians were being saved in that world, once again, I can tell you to leave and go do whatever you want, but once again, what have you done to pay back what you have taken or what, what you've done wrong? So this man probably was there for committing crimes, had left and said, I'm out of here, gets arrested for whatever reasons. Paul wins him to the Lord, calls him his son, and says, I want to send him back to you. But now watch this. He says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a what? No longer as a, but better than a slave as a what? Dear brother. So if in the system of the Roman world, if you were still considered a slave and I was your master in the Christian church, what were you to me? A dear brother. And what was I to you? A dear brother. We may still be, I may be different status because I'm a Roman citizen and you're not. And I see this in India with the touchables or rather the untouchables who don't have the same privileges. Imagine if a Christian family who comes from a, 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 a Singh, like their last name is Singh, and they have like a Brahmin class, uh, you know, inheritance, and they can go to school and all of this. They may in that church say, come work for my family, do all of these things. I'm going to help you, but I'm going to treat you as a brother. Do you understand? It's called redemption lift. In the midst of the culture, they are redeeming the culture and changing it to submit to Jesus Christ. Receive him better than a slave as a brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow what? As a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul is the abolitionist's best friend. You love uplifting of women, you love Paul. If you love the freeing of all people and people being treated as brothers and fellow men, you love Paul. And then look how he says it lastly. You couldn't say it any more serious. We have a whole book. We have a whole book dedicated to this, remember. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Okay? So now I just want to ask you, how many of you here will welcome people into your life who don't look like you? who don't talk like you, and will serve them so that they may know Christ. That doesn't mean you bring the homeless man in and let him take over your home and endanger your family. It doesn't mean we open up our borders and let everybody in at all times. But what we should do is be a generous, kind nation with generous laws, welcoming in the stranger, protecting our borders, and in our homes, protecting our homes, but welcoming in people, loving those who don't look like us, empowering the lower ones around us, maybe the janitor, encouraging them if you're the boss on the job, doing unto others as you would want done unto them. How many can be inspired? Inspired by Paul. Amen. The next thing that we see is that Paul was faithful in suffering. Now, I want to uh, come to this really quickly so everybody get this. This is what Paul suffered for Jesus. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten for rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. That's probably why some of these chairs are empty today, right? Is because they were getting pelted with stones on their way here, right? 
Is that probably why? There were probably, you know, there's people that couldn't come today because they were getting beaten with rods, right? What keeps American Christians from church on a day like today? Is it the beating of the rods? Because this brother still went to church. Is it the pelting of stones? Do we have it much worse than them? No, you know what it keeps them from church? Oh, man, it's a lazy Sunday. I've got three loads of laundry. Church, laundry, church, laundry. Uh, laundry, okay, I'll go to church next week. Got my friends calling me up, you know, Super Bowl church, Super Bowl church, Super Bowl, okay, right? Promotion, church, promotion, ah, promotion, I'll work Sundays, you got me, yeah, you got me, okay. But here this man suffers for Jesus, but over and over and over again, he's faithful to Jesus. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, it doesn't seem like a lot of people like him. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored, toiled, have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone to bed without food. And some college students say amen to that, right? I have been cold and naked. Hope you don't do that. Besides anything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't burn inwardly? This is a mere man. This is not the God-man, Jesus. This is a mere man like us. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever. He never lost his praise. He was beaten and put into a jail cell, but didn't lose his praise. He praised in that Philippian jail, the Bible says. He praised God on good days, on bad days, when he was naked or clothed and food without food. He praised God all the time. Can you do that? Or is it just, you know, one bad thing happened in your life and you just get all pouty and just have a little pity patty party? Come on, God, you don't understand. Not everybody in my house loves Jesus, and it's hard. It's hard. I don't want to do it anymore, Jesus. I don't want to do it. Anymore. I'm not. Oh, God, on my job, they make fun of me, God. They make fun of me. I don't want to do it anymore, God. Isn't that how you feel? We get like that, don't we? God, it's so hard, so hard. I can't afford my cable. I can't afford my cell phone. and I can't afford all of these things. God, I'm suffering. I'm dying. I'm dying. Right? That's what we think. We can't, oh, man, we lose cable. We're dying. We lose our cell phone. We're dying. We're suffering. Right? We, we, we put all these things before God, then we suffer a little bit when we serve God. And I'm not saying it's all about suffering. He saw some of the greatest miracles, the greatest things of his life. But yes, there was a part of it that was painful and suffering, and it was, it was achieving for him a greater weight of glory to come in the kingdom, storing treasures in heaven, and he counted it worth it. He said, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to praise God. Amen? How many want to praise God no matter what you face? Here's the second and last thing. Paul depended upon the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, many of you, you stink at Christianity because you don't do Christianity right. And you blame Christianity for your stinking thinking and your stinking life. And you got to stop doing that. I got to be a little bit more rebuking here right now and not so funny. Some of you, you blame God for the stuff you and the devil did together. 
And maybe some of those things wasn't your choice. It was done to you. But how you react to those things is your choice. And so if you look at somebody like Paul and go, it was easy for him, but he didn't know what it felt like to be brought up without a dad and, and to have your mom on drugs. He don't know. He just don't know. He makes it look easy. That pastor, they don't know. They, you don't know Christianity. Paul was not an apostle by his own strength. Paul didn't do what he did through all of his sufferings because he just tried a little bit harder. It was not self-help. As a matter of fact, he had to deny himself. So if Christianity stinks for you and doesn't work, it's because you are stinky and you're not doing it right. Paul said, not that we are competent in our own selves to claim anything for ourselves. Nothing good that Paul did came from himself. Do you understand? Nothing good that I have done has come from myself. He said, but our competence comes from God. He's the one that wrote that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. He's the one that wrote in Romans, you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. He's the one who wrote in this letter that you are seated in heavenly places with Christ while he himself is in prison. He was teaching you this principle that God made him competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You need life, you need encouragement, you need God to carry your burdens, take away your excuses, let the Spirit of God come in. The Spirit of God will flip you right side up. The Spirit of God will turn your frown upside down. He will take away your mess and have you be blessed. Hallelujah. God will do for you what you can never do for yourself. Stop trying to fix yourself. You don't need upgrades. You don't need renovations. You need to be made a brand new creation by the grace of God. It's not a little bit of you and a little bit of God. That's why it doesn't work for you. You need 100% of God and none of you. Hallelujah. Can I hear an amen? God is good. How many of you see Christianity working in your life? It works, doesn't it? And lastly, Paul was faithful to finish his race. Rachel, would you come, please? He was faithful. He made a decision. I won't quit. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. It doesn't matter who leaves me. I won't quit. God will give me the strength to finish my race. He said, I feel like I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Look at those three things. He said, I fought the good fight. That means he didn't, he didn't give up. When he got knocked down, he decided, I will get up, and God gave him the strength every time. But what God can't do is make you do what you don't want to do. Do you understand that? There's things that God can't do. He's restricted himself. God can't lie. God will not act like the devil. And then what God cannot do is violate your free will. He gave you free will as a gift, amen? But if you say back to him, not my will, God, but your will, Lord, I, I've been knocked down. Would you pick me up? He'll lift you up. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Who empowered him to take steps when he couldn't take steps anymore? Bible says in Isaiah, even the youth will go tired and faint. Even the strong will grow weak. But those who wait upon the Lord will have their strength renewed. They will run and not grow weary. Walk and not faint. 
They shall soar upon the wind like an eagle. Do you see an eagle struggling to stay up there like a chicken or a turkey? Do you see eagles doing that? How did I get up here? How did I get up here? Throw a turkey off a building and see what it does. Get an eagle on a building. You watch professional swimmers, because I used to love to swim. You watch them, just their strokes, take them right through the water. You'll be like, help me, Jesus, help me. They're just like. That's how God makes the righteous. He says, I have finished the race. Who put every pep in his step? The Lord did. He said, I kept the faith. Who gave him the strength to hold on when he felt like letting go? He said at one point, he said, I do feel like dying, man. He says, it's so hard. I just feel like dying. He said, but I'm staying for you because I know I'm helping you, churches. Who gave him that strength? The Holy Spirit. He says, for there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Everyone look up at me, please. Why does Paul get the crown of righteousness? Because he did a bunch of good things? Or because he trusted in the good one, the God-man, Jesus, the sacrifice, right? But now watch this, not only for me. Paul doesn't sit up on a pedestal. Do you know that Paul's name is going to be written on the 12 stones of the Jerusalem that will come in and out of New Jerusalem? He will be there with the 12 apostles' names. Do you know that Paul will rule and reign with Christ upon the thrones of the disciples? Twelve of them will rule the government. They will be our Supreme Court. Paul wrote more in the New Testament than anybody else. Had experiences. He said that he couldn't even write in the Bible. And he told some great things in the Bible. And we've read Revelation in the Bible. But he said, the places I've been to the third heavens, we believe it was when he was left for dead, though, by the way. He said, I can't even tell you what up there. Can't even tell you. All he said was no one has seen, no eye has heard, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what the Lord has prepared. He can do greater things than you can ask, think, or imagine. That's in Ephesians, right? This Paul, this Paul said to you, but not only me. Not only me. I don't only get this crown, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. Are you longing to have Jesus come back? There's a crown waiting for you. Look at your neighbor and say, get ready for the message. I want to, no, I'm just half teasing here. I want to give you Paul's threefold motivation because I wouldn't be right unless I ended like this. I, I had to power pack so much in here. Any wasted words? I don't think I told too many stories about my pet, Spark, my dog Sparky, did I? Did I tell you any baby stories today? How about some of the jokes that I learned from, uh, from Carson Daly or whoever? Did I, no one knows Carson Daly. Uh, what's the other guy? Who's the new popular one that always does the singing and all of that? The, the Nate, Nate, Jimmy Fallon. I'm wasting words while I'm talking about not wasting words, right? did as much as I could get done today. Here's the deal. I want to give you his motivation. Those are his inspirations. Let's give you the motivation. Everybody say inspiration, motivation. Paul summarized his life a few different times throughout his writings. Here's the one that sticks out to me. He says, I do it all for this, to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings. Look at Philippians 3, 4. Although myself might have even more confidence in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I have far more Because he's going to talk about, y'all got people bragging about how close they are to God and what they think they know. Let me tell you, I got more reasons to brag 
I'm circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. That's God's chosen people, the tribe of Benjamin, one of God's favorite tribes. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Those are the top-notch guys. They're the teachers. As to the zeal, a persecutor of the church. I was in charge of stuff. As to righteousness by the law, found blameless. You couldn't pick stuff out of my life. I was doing all the fast, all of the holy days, etc. But look at what he says here. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've now counted loss. That's for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul chose to be single so he could give more time to Jesus in the ministry. How many would receive that calling? <laughs> Some of us are already married. We don't have the choice, but that would be a tough calling. Be like, no, Lord, I'm going to give that one back. I'm going to pass on that one. I'll take all the other gifts you got for me. But Paul said to, literally, he said to the Lord, give it all to me. And God said, well, then go for broke. And that's kind of where they get the tradition of priests being celibate was from Paul. It wasn't from Peter, which is funny because they say Peter was the first pope, but Peter was married with kids. Try to figure that out. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, from whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Can you just think about his life now and just picture what he's saying? All of my family, all of my schooling, all of the reputation, all the power, all the money, I cast aside. And now all my privilege as an apostle, all the respect I get, all the honor, all that I do still doesn't compare to knowing Christ. He says, I count it rubbish that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Somebody say, in him. That I may be found in him. Come on, say it again. In him. Thank you. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Because without God's righteousness, he's the worst of all sinners, right? So are we all. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, here he goes, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. He knew one day he would be raised up as Jesus was and he would rule and reign with Christ, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Look at this. We all need to end out with this. Not that I've already obtained it or I've already been become perfect. Like he says, I'm not finished in my flesh. My flesh still needs to be perfect at the resurrection. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that which has laid hold of me. Everybody say, I want to lay hold of that which laid hold of me. I want to lay hold of that which laid hold of me. Amen. By Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. That's the resurrection. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. So he's like, you don't know about this. God will teach it if you hang around long enough. However, let us keep living by the standard to which we have obtained. How many want to live by that standard? How many want to walk worthy of that calling? Can we stand up and give it up for Jesus? Come on, amen. Amen. It's all about Jesus today. Here's final words from Paul found in the book of Ephesians. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace. It was always by grace.
given me through the working of his power. So how was he an apostle? By God's grace, through the working of the power of God. How will you be a great mom and nurse? By God's grace and the working of God's power. Young man, how will you stay out of trouble, get good grades, and be the man that God called you to be? By God's grace, through his power. How will you accomplish all that you have in your life today? By God's grace and through his power. And although I might be less and the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Let's close out in prayer and see what God has given us to do. Would you just close your eyes in an attitude of prayer and say, Lord, help me to follow you as Paul did. Lord, I want to follow you just like Paul the apostle did. Come on, let's talk to the Lord right now. Jesus, Jesus, may I follow you in my family. May I follow you on my job. May I put you first in all that I do. Make it personal right now. Ask the Lord to send you esteemed leaders to share your life with, to run th some things by. Altar workers, would you come, please? Don't leave out of here by yourself, uh, doing this by yourself. As I call up altar workers, they're here for you to be elders and deacons in the tradition of the apostles.